This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Second period of scholasticism is the 13th century. This is the period of high scholasticism. This is its, its highest expression. And one of the most important single things to know about the 13th century and about high scholasticism is this. Aristotle was rediscovered in the 13th century. Aristotle was rediscovered in the 13th century. Up to that point, there were only bits and pieces of Aristotle in translation. And so most theologians did not have access to Aristotle, particularly in terms of his logical methodology. But now you're getting to the 13th century and you've had the Crusades. And the Crusades dealt with the, the Muslims. And the Muslims had earlier, back in the 9th century, recovered Aristotle for themselves. And so you have a lot of Muslims deeply involved in Aristotelian thought. And by this contact with the Crusades in particular, the West encountered a Muslim-flavored Aristotle. Some of the famous names are Averroes and Avicenna, two Arab uh, Muslims who wrote commentaries uh, explicating Aristotle's thought. Uh, and so you'll find many of the 13th century Western theologians uh, reading these Muslim Aristotelians. Very interesting dynamic there. Now I mentioned Bothius because uh, back in the uh, 11th century he had done some translation of Aristotle. But that both, Bothius is the, the only person in the West who had done any real work with Aristotle and it was relatively minimal and not generally accessible to most medieval theologians. So he's a crucial person because he's sort of a precursor uh, Aristotelian. And Averroes and Avicenna are two Muslim Aristotelians uh, who are widely read by the Western theologians in the 13th century and so for some, there is, is a, uh, a, a Muslim-flavored Aristotle. Did he translate from the original or was he translating Muslim? I think he was translating from the Greek, if I'm not mistaken. These two here, that's Aristotle. These two, they were Muslim. Yes, yes, that's right. Everose, he was a philosopher. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
key point now is in the 13th century, because of the encounter, particularly with the Muslims, there is a renewed interest in the writings of Aristotle. And so as a result, the entire body of his writings are beginning to be translated into Latin and therefore become accessible to theologians. They're translated into Latin in the early 13th century and now accessible. And now Aristotle, the pagan Aristotle, the recovery, the translation of his writings sends shockwaves throughout Western Europe. The Western church doesn't quite know what to do with him. This, these series of events here will, will illustrate that. In 1210, there was a church council at Paris. 1210, a church council at Paris, which forbade anyone reading Aristotle. He is a pagan, and churchmen ought not read this pagan Aristotle. So in 1210, a council in Paris said, you cannot read him. But in 1215, five years later, at the very famous Fourth Lateran Council, a statement was issued about Aristotle. The statement said, in summary, that it's okay to read his books on logic and ethics. His books on logic and ethics are permissible for theologians and other folk to read, but nothing else, not his metaphysics or his physics. Again, the church is not quite sure how to deal with this, this pagan. He's, he's obviously attracting a lot of attention, and a lot of folk think he might be useful in the theological enterprise in the early, third century, uh, early 13th century. But the church is reticent to give approval. By 1250, 1250, the University of Paris has Aristotle as required reading. You see the progression? You can't read Aristotle in 1210. By 1215, you can read some of his writings. By 1250, it's required that you read Aristotle to, be, to become a theologian. Aristotle, by the mid-13th century, is the rage in the theological schools. Period of scholasticism. The second main period in the 13th century. The key event is the translation and recovery of Aristotle's writings. The first major theologian to have a broad acquaintance with Aristotle and the first theologian to try to integrate Aristotelian philosophy with Christianity was Albert the Great. 1193 to 1280 are his dates. Albert Magnus, as he is called as well. Albert the Great. He was also called Dr. Universalis the universal doctor, because he had such a grand and broad view of theology, uh, he received this accolade, this title. 
Now, he's important because, one, he does try, he makes the first full attempt to integrate Aristotle into Christian theology. He's the one who opens the Christian door to let this pagan Aristotle come in. Okay? But he's also important because he was the teacher of Thomas Aquinas at Paris and then at Cologne. And they're to, to integrate Aristotelian philosophy into uh, Christian, Christian theology. When you read Aquinas, for example, he will talk about God as the prime mover. That's what Aristotle says. That's, that's Aristotelian language. He talks about God as uh, the, one, the, the one who moves things. And there, there are subsequent things cause other things to move. It's very, very Aristotelian in the way Aquinas employs Aristotle. And I would say that although it was it began, this integration between Aristotle and Christianity began with Albert the Great, it reaches its zenith in Thomas Aquinas. And he is called Doctor Angelicus, the angelic doctor. I make them all up. <laughs> On the spot. No, the church, uh, often looking back on, on some of the great persons who have influenced them, will have all have these, these names. And I, I thought it would be lots of fun for you guys to know all this. Yes. Doctor of Grace. <laughs> the Doctor of Grace is, is, is Augustine. I, don't don't uh, make one up for me. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Moving on, the the next major person. I, I'm mentioning major persons now in the second period of scholasticism. Just so you'll have at least a passing acquaintance, Bonaventure. His real name was Fidanza, John Fidanza, and uh, apparently uh, his mother was having trouble. Uh, having a child and she had a child and she said Bonaventure good fortune and so he is always known as uh, Bonaventure and he is called the Dr. Seraphicus now you want to know what that means I suppose the Seraphic Doctor now Seraphic goes back to the Seraphim which are the highest angels and the idea is that he is the highest doctor. One's the universal doctor. And one is the sort of the, the highest angelic doctor of the church. Uh, these are ways of recognizing, uh, giving them a sort of a special recognition. They sort of stand out from the other theologians. Uh, Bonaventure is also a person in whom we find both the mystical element and the very uh, rationalistic side. Uh, he is a Franciscan. Uh, Thomas was a Dominican. And throughout the Middle Ages, what happens in the, in the, in the very beginnings of the universities, theology was delegated to the mendicant orders. And the two major mendicant orders were the Dominicans and the Franciscans. So if you want to go to Paris and you want to study theology, 
then you had to study theology under either the Dominicans or the Franciscans. And you went to their monastery to get your degree from the university. Are you clear about that? Very different. The university itself didn't have a special department of theology. They delegated that out to the Dominican orders. The other third Dominican order are the Augustinian hermits. And they are, they are a little bit behind the Franciscans and the Dominicans. And it was their job, both those, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, it was their job to do teaching. And the Pope uh, delegated that responsibility to those two groups, the Franciscans and the Dominicans. One scholar says of Bonaventure, he is the greatest scholastic among the mystics and the greatest mystic among the scholastics. So he combines both of those sides. Uh, the fourth major person of the second period is John Duns Scotus, Dr. Subtilius, the subtle doctor. Uh, he represents almost a transition figure from the second period to the third period. Uh, very significant person. With the emergence of the theology of Scotus, one finds the development of two major schools of thought. Now, let me say this very carefully. Protestants have a, and I, maybe I've said this in here before, but Protestants have a misunderstanding of Catholicism today and also in the Middle Ages. We tend to look back on Catholicism as if it were monolithic and everybody agreed on everything. Not the case. Uh, Medieval Catholicism had various schools of thought. There were some that were very, very Augustinian. Do you recall that I said that uh, generally a semi-Augustinian theology prevailed in the church? But alongside that, there was also a more narrow stream of really intense Augustinians. People like Gregory of Remini, who taught double predestination in all its glory back in the 14th century, uh, for example. Very intense Augustinian. And you'll also find other groups that took a more semi-Pelagian sort of view, a range of Pelagian, semi-Pelagian strains of thought. So all of those were all moving along at the same time. But out of that group, in the 13th century, two major schools of thought emerge. The school of Scotus and the, Thoma, the Thomists are the two major schools that emerge in the third century. The Thomists, as you might expect, tended to have a strong Aristotelian flavor. They welcomed Augusta, uh, Aristotle into the uh, theological enterprise. And this may surprise some of you. It's Aristotelian, particularly in terms of methodology, but in content, the Thomists have a fairly strong Augustinian theological content. The Thomists tended to be one of the, one of the preservers of the Augustinian heritage, beginning with Aquinas himself. So, the Thomists were Aristotelian and Augustinian. Now, I hope that doesn't seem as like it's a mutual contradiction to you because it, it shouldn't. Not in the Middle Ages. And the Scotists, on the other hand, 
were much more platonic in flavor, Platonistic. What they did is, you talk about the difference between method and content. Uh, the Thomists, in terms of methodology, very organized, rational kinds of categories, they borrowed that, particularly from Aristotle. But the content, the theological content, was uh, particularly Augustinian. Okay? It's, an, it's also a mistake to pit Aristotle against Plato. That's another misnomer that a lot of students fall prey to. You, you need to be very careful not to do that. Well, it's a yeah. He well. Yeah, I mean, I don't recall specifically if he said that, but certainly that would be in keeping with his high estimation of Aristotle. Uh, there were lots and lots of of people in the Middle Ages who felt that some of the ancient pagans, the ancient moral pagans like Aristotle and Plato, were in fact saved. Uh, that is a very common view. So. In fact, it reaches even into the Reformation period. I've mentioned Ulrich Zwingli is someone who believed that Socrates and Plato were both will both be in heaven. Uh, uh, Martin Bucer, another famous Strasbourg reformer of the 16th century, believed Socrates uh, and some of the other moral pagans, as they're called, were saved. Yes. So that's that's not a, a, a particularly unusual kind of belief in the Middle Ages. Uh, they're looking, particularly when Aristotle is so useful to the Thomists, uh, there's this inclination to have a very high view. Okay, so the Scotists tend to be more Platonic or Platonistic in their philosophical orientation, but in terms of the content, it tended to be more Pelagian. We need to be very careful here. Uh, these are tendencies. I'm not saying necessarily that Scotist is Scotus and Scotists are Pelagian in every case. I mean, Scotists believe... What's that? More, more toward uh, semi-Pelagian, probably be more accurate. So besides these sort of philosophical, theological, different tendencies between the Thomists and the Scotists, you will find on one particular doctrine, this becomes a big deal, the question of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Scotus believed that Mary was conceived without original sin. That she did not have a sin nature. Now the Thomists and the Scotists agreed, these two schools of thought, that Mary lived a perfect life. Okay, both the Scotists and the Thomists believed that Mary lived a perfect life. The difference was her conception. The Scotists believed that even at her conception, she was without sin. She did not inherit a sin nature. The Thomists said, well, she was conceived in sin, and she did have, she was tainted with original sin. This, this was a major battle, and it ended up being not only a, a battle between the two schools, but a battle between the two uh, orders, the Franciscans and the Dominicans. 
Dominicans because they tended to be more Thomistic. The Franciscans tended to be more Scotists. And so you have this, this major division uh, in the Middle Ages between their view of Mary. Both had high views of Mary, but in terms of original uh, sin, uh, the Thomists said she was tainted with original sin. Uh, she is blessed. She she exercises uh, her will in a, in a right way. She's infused with grace. We'll get into that actually a little bit. This, I'm, I'm sort of pointing out as an historical matter yeah. that this was a major issue in the 13th century. Well, it's a period of time in which, uh, in fact, high views of Mary go way back into the early centuries. You find the early stages of that. It develops, it gets higher and higher throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, and it, uh, inevitably, that's going to create some tension. Some people see her even higher than others. And that's where you have a, have a difference of opinion here about the degree to which she should be exalted. Press on. Third period of scholasticism. 14th and 15th centuries. Uh, this is called late medieval scholasticism. Late medieval scholasticism. And the preeminent representative is William of Ockham. An Oxford man, I might add. William of Ockham died in 1350. And he was a rascal. He was called the Doctor Invincibilis, the Invincible Doctor. Uh, that is probably because he survived excommunication with his life. Uh, he, was, he was not well liked by the establishment. But his influence was, was pervasive. Uh, because of Occam and his followers, a third major school emerges in the late Middle Ages, in the 14th and 15th centuries. The first two major schools were the Scotists, the Thomists, and now the third major group are the Nominalists. That's the, the name for uh, the followers of Occam. There's a this is a very complicated question, and I have simplified it. So just accept, take my word for it. Uh, it's, it's deeper than you want to go. Nominalism. Did I put that up there? And what was the dates for uh, He died in 1350. Now, these two... These two uh, Titles he had he's unique because he had two titles. Uh, the first one is the Invincible Doctor, and the other is the Venerabilis Bilis Inceptor. That is the Venerable uh, Inaugurator of Nominalism. He's the the venerated uh, starter upper of this third school called Nominalism. Instigator, that's good. The Venerable Inceptor. Now, I'm going to have to do something that I know 
may be hard for some folk, for most of us actually. And that's when you're talking about the final period uh, in particular, uh, we, we inevitably have to talk about the problem of universals, a very kind of philosophical um, idea. So bear with me for just a few minutes. I will try to explain the three philosophical views with regard to the broad question of universals. So the, the key question here is, what are, univer are, un are there universals? And I'll explain all that as I go on. Okay. Are you ready? Mine's clear. No, 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 no. We're going to celebrate number one. The first viewpoint dealing with the question of universals is called Platonic Realism. Platonic Realism. It's called Platonic because it harkens back to Plato. It, har it, it goes back to Plato for some of the basic ideas. Uh, generally speaking, the Platonic realists wanted to stress that there is a world beyond this one. It is a world that is more real than this one. Our world is a mere shadow of the real other world. Okay? That's what the Platonic realists believe. Some of you will recall the famous uh, story in Plato's Republic about the allegory of the cave. Three men are chained in this cave, raised their whole life there, and all they ever see their entire life are shadows on the wall because there's a fire behind them. That's all they ever see are these shadows. One day one of them breaks free, goes out into the, the sunshine, and he sees a whole different... He can't hardly believe that's what reality is. It's, it's the sunlight and like this and not shadows. He then comes back into the cave and he tries to explain reality, the real world out there, up there, to these people whose world whose entire world has been just shadows on the wall. And they can't believe him. So, it's this idea, Plato is getting at this distinction between this world, which is merely a reflection of the real, real world out there. So keep that in mind as I go along. To illustrate further, borrowing an illustration from uh, my supervisor at Oxford, Alistair McGrath, Suppose there are two white stones in my hand. A realist will look at those two white stones and reach two conclusions about those two white stones. First, he will say those two white stones exist in space and time. Write that down. You're getting caught up in the illustration, folks. <laughs> Two white stones exist individually in space and time. That's the first conclusion they reach about two white stones. The second conclusion is that there is a universal idea of whiteness embodied in those two white stones. 
there's this idea of whiteness in those two white stones. And that is very much associated with those two individual stones. Now, for the realist, this universal idea of whiteness is, belongs to the other world of ideals. Another illustration. Socrates and Plato are human beings. They are each examples of humanity. No matter how many individual people you identify, they are all humans. One's named Joe and one name is Bob and one named something else. So they're different, but they all embody the, the same idea of humanity. Plato, the Platonic realists, want to say that there is an ultimate uh, ideal of humanity up there. The world, the ideas. Yeah, we can talk about it. You get there are lots of illustrations. You talk about the ideal of truth and beauty and so forth. Now, the key thing here is for the realist is that the universal, that is the idea of whiteness or the ideal of truth, exists more really than the individual expression. There's real existence. Uh, the, the key point here is, is that there are universal ideas which exist apart from the particular thing. That there is a humanness out there that exists apart from the humanity of Socrates or the humanity of Plato. And the term used to describe this is universalia ante rem. That is that universals exist before things. Is what that translates. The bottom line is that there is an ultimate reality beyond this world this ultimate reality, and it's called realism because they want to stress that universals are real. Yes, it's universals exist before or apart from things. Now, the, the major exponent of this platonic realism is Anselm. Now, the nominalist, the second group here, will come to those same two white stones. And he will conclude that they're just individual stones. They exist in space and time. There's no need to speculate about ultimate reality or to talk about universals. The nominalist is skeptical about the existence of this other world this world of universals. He thinks it's unnecessary and cannot be demonstrated. The rap against Occam and the nominalists is that they were, in, in fact, a bunch of skeptics. 
it's unnecessary to speculate that there is a world of universals out there. What's that? A doubtful, that's right. So, when they look at those two white stones, there is just no need to speculate, no need to talk about universals, universal concept of whiteness. When you look at Plato and Socrates, there's no need, say the nominalists, to speculate about an ultimate idea of humanity. And the phrase that's used there is universalia post rem. Universalia post rem, which means universals are derived from individual things. Which is another way of saying there's no independent existence. Universals, say the nominalists, are merely subjective ideas created by the human mind. They simply say that, that Plato and the realists have simply created this world of ideals, of ideas and ideals in their own mind. They are not, in fact, true. In fact, this is the way the nominalists arrive at their name. They say that these these universals, this, this universal idea of truth or beauty, of humanity or of whiteness, those are merely names, nomen. And so the nominalists are the ones, the nominalists are the ones who say universals are merely names, they're merely words. So nomen, N-O-M-E-N, Latin, means names. They're just mere words. And that's why they're called nominalists. They are skeptical about the existence of universals. Now there's still a third group. Incidentally, the, two ma the major representative of nominalism here is uh, William of Ockham, obviously. There's also his disciple, Gabriel Beale, B-I-E-L. Is Ockham. William of Ockham, O-C-K-H-A-M. Now, a third view arose, which is sort of a mediating view between Platonic realism and nominalism. It is called conceptualism. Or, it can also be called Aristotelian realism. Or, again, sometimes called moderate realism. So the three terms for conceptualism are conceptualism, moderate realism, or Aristotelian realism. Those are the three terms that refer to the same basic idea. Now this view argues, one, that universals do exist. That there is this universal idea of truth and beauty that has an, an existence out there in this other world. So universals exist for the conceptualists. However, they add that those universals exist in the individual thing itself. That the universals exist in the thing itself, not out there, but down here in the thing itself. Universalia in re. Universals are in the thing itself. 
to return to the two white stones. The conceptualists will say that there is this idea of whiteness that each of these two stones share. But it does not, the idea of whiteness does not exist in some other world. It exists in the two white stones themselves. So universals exist in the individual thing itself. Same thing with, with Plato and Aristotle, or Plato and Socrates. The idea of humanity, there is a universal. But that universal does not exist out there. It exists in the individual things themselves. Universalia in rem. The tabula rasa idea? Where everything's empirical data. It, it, it seems like that to say that something universal is, is talking more like innate ideas, which goes against empirical. That would be something more like this, I think. I, th I think we're talking about something different here. These are not the same. I'm just trying to take content and put things together. Yeah. Like nominalism would be hard for empiricism. There's, in fact, the fact of the matter is, is that the nominalists tended to produce scientists, people who were very good at, at, the, at observing individual things, and not worrying about. Well, it seems to me that Aristotle would be more of a nominalist, or a follower of Aristotle. That's why I'm getting. Yeah, uh, not necessarily. I mean, that's not the way it worked out, necessarily. Uh, let's move on here. I know it's it's a. Uh, these are kind of strange ideas. But it gives you an idea of what the Middle Ages, particularly the later Middle Ages, was all about. They're, they're sitting trying to figure out these very abstract kinds of ideas. Uh, the, the, but, but they have real existence. According to, I mean, depending on which of these three. Whether it exists and where does it exist? Does it exist out there or does it exist here in the thing itself? Okay. Uh, the preeminent exponents of conceptualism are Aquinas, Abelard are the two major exponents. One thing that's very interesting, I mentioned that there are three schools of thought, the Scotus, the Thomist, and the Nominalist groups. Uh, what you find in the later Middle Ages, 14th and 15th century, is almost every university will have three chairs of philosophy and three chairs of theology. A Scotus professor of theology, a Thomist professor of theology, and a Nominalist professor of theology. These are the three major groups. What's interesting as well is that, this is for, for another class, but I'll mention it, is that the viewpoint that gains dominance right before the Reformation is the nominalistic view. And Luther himself was trained as a nominalist in his thinking. Uh, in fact, he turns against it when he discovers sola fide. Anyway. Uh, one other quick note 
is when you talk about in the, and you look at this period and you read any sort of writings on the subject, you will find references to the Via Antiqua and the Via Moderna. Uh, the Via Antiqua refers to Scotists and Thomists. This is a great multiple choice kind of question. This is the kind of thing you want to circle in red. The Thomists and the Scotists belong to the, the Via Antiqua, or the Old Way. The Nominalists belong to the Via Moderna, the New Way. Remember how the Nominalists begin to emerge in the late Middle Ages. The Via Antiqua emerged in the, the Middle Middle Ages. Now, Nominalism and Occam created some problems. Now, they gained a lot of followers in the universities. Uh, the academics, a lot of them liked some of the ideas of, of Occam, but it created real problems for, for the more orthodox. Think, for example, of the doctrine of the Trinity. Some thought that the nominalists were suggesting that the Trinity is merely a nomen, a name, and that there is no reality of the Trinity out there. The other two viewpoints, the Platonic realist and the, the conceptualist, did talk about universals. And that those philosophical kinds of schools of thought permitted, they thought, uh, them to talk about God and the Trinity that, that existed out there. They were, they were associated with the idea of the universals. But nominalists who said there were no universals, that created some tension for the more uh, uh, Thomas types because that might mean that there were no actual, there's no trinity in fact. Warren? The Moderna, that refers to the nominalists. Unlimited. It's an, it's it's yeah. I'll move. I need to move pretty quickly here. Uh, Occam was, I think, somewhat theologically mischievous. He was the kind of person who began to say that theological doctrines such as the Trinity, and indeed even the existence of God, cannot be rationally demonstrated. It is simply a matter of faith. His attitude went very different from that of Aquinas and Anselm. He's a little more Abelardian, if you will. Occam. I'm talking about Occam. Occam is very mischievous in that he raised questions about all of, a, lot, a lot of key basic doctrines. He didn't deny them. He just said they cannot be rationally demonstrated. And that got him into trouble in a world which was dominated by Aristotelian categories and logic. I was saying that he does not believe that many of the basic theological doctrines can be rationally demonstrated. They are a matter of faith not a matter of ra reason. 
So, in general, we can say that where Anselm and Aquinas tried to marry reason and faith, Occam comes along and divorces reason from faith. That is a key idea. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.